0: Welcome to another episode of The Good Listening To Show, your life and times with me, Chris Grimes, the storytelling show that features The Clearing, where all good questions come to get asked and all good stories come to be told. And where all my guests have two things in common. They're all creative individuals and all with an interesting story to tell. There are some lovely storytelling metaphors a clearing, a tree, a juicy storytelling exercise called 54321, some alchemy, some gold, a cheeky bit of Shakespeare, and a cake. So it's all to play for. So, yes, welcome to the Good Listening To Show, Your Life and Times with me, Chris Grimes. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we shall begin. Welcome, welcome, thrice welcome. Let's go for four. Welcome again to Cal McAninch, who is a half man, half Viking from the point of view of also being I am Spartacus. He's just survived rowing across the Atlantic. And so this is uh, Cal's kindly agreed to come for a second pass or a second row through the clearing to talk about his extraordinary epic quest of rowing in a squad of five 3,000 miles across the Atlantic as part of the Talisker Whiskey Challenge for Atlantic Body and Soul, which was the uh, name of your boat, I believe. Maybe it wasn't, but that's the charity you were there to to row for. So uh, welcome back on, from your epic quest, Cal McAninch. How are you?
1: Hello, how are you doing? Uh, Just to clarify, our name was Atlantic Body and Soul. We were rowing for two charities, one of which was Body and Soul, which is based in London, but um, has a reach far beyond that, and The Junction, who are based in Edinburgh, and they both deal with young people's mental health, The Body and Soul dealing with um, people who've experienced childhood trauma, and uh, The Junction is a drop-in centre for young people in in Leith and North Edinburgh, and uh, they both help young people navigate their way back from suicidal thinking. So it was a great honour and privilege to be able to to row across the the Atlantic for them.
0: And you're um, attaching yourselves to that specific charity. What was the journey and the reason why uh, that was the charity you fixed upon to help?
1: Uh, Well, initially it was I was part of another crew and um, somebody in my other crew, uh, their relative had... um, I'd worked with Body and Soul, and I'd been cared for by Body and Soul, and said they were an amazing charity, and that we should speak to them. And um, we thought of we spoke to three charities in total. Um, had meetings with them for an hour long just to talk to them. And Body and Soul, the meeting went so well with them that we had a second meeting, so we two-hour chat, and we just felt uh, an instant connection with them. So that's why we we chose Body and Soul, and the Junction is is just a. Um, we knew people who were connected to the junction in Edinburgh. They wanted to do something for local people as well. And it's
0: such a triumphant thing to have achieved. I'm not even sure of the statistics of how few, few people in the world managed to row across the Atlantic. Did you bother to sort of do that, to compare? You no,
1: know, I heard it recently and I've forgotten the number, but it's certainly less than the people who have climbed Everest, for sure. And it is one of those great expeditions, that you, you know, elemental things that people still feel inspired to do or to hear about. And, um, and it was just something that fired my imagination. And, uh, and it, was, um, it wasn't quite what I imagined. Um, I thought it was going to be this um, communing with, with nature and lots of wildlife and uh, whales and dolphins and even sharks. And in actual fact, um, we didn't see any of them. <laughs> we, saw, <laughs> we saw more whales and dolphins up the north of Scotland when we did our training, believe it or not. We thought they were, we were going to be surrounded by them in the Atlantic Ocean. And we saw a million flying fish instead.
0: Ah, so that was the sort of creature of choice that, that most <laughs> yeah. showed up. Is that right?
1: Indeed, yeah. Then they hit you in the face and they go down your vest and they're all over the place. And we spent so much time. They land on the boat and you then have to rescue them and try and throw them back into the sea again. So we spent a lot of time doing that and, and cursing flying fish, to be honest. Oh, OK. So,
0: so they're not arriving as free supper. You want to get them off the boat as quickly as you exactly, can.
1: Exactly, yeah. And some of them were tiny. So, they, I mean, little little baby things. So as soon as as soon as they're hatched, they must be able to fly. And, and part of me was thinking, because the day before we finished, I saw, I was looking out. I wasn't rowing. I was looking out to sea. And there was about 15 of them all took off at once. It was like a squadron of flying fish. And I had the idea that, you know, because mankind is poisoning the seas as we speak, that all the fish were communicating to each other that we must evolve and must grow wings. Let's get out of here, guys, it's, you know, before it's too late.
0: Yeah, they did it well with feet back in the day.
1: it did, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So ne- next exactly. it's
0: wings. So flying exactly. fish are the new the new world order, basically. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so we're going to come on to the curated structure as before. I thought it would be really intriguing to, if I may, not to be too prescriptive, but use the extraordinary expanse of the Atlantic as a metaphor for your clearing, and then for me to just really explore with you how extraordinary a feat it was, but also how it must have changed you, because I can imagine that you were a very different man that set off than the one that arrived, and indeed your squad of five must have had an extraordinary you know shared experience but also you must have gone i would imagine the whole gamut of human emotion must have been experienced through the course of, of the journey
1: pretty much yes
0: so um you, how long have you been back so how's morale and and, and what's the sort of timeline of um, when you arrived back
1: being back about uh, two weeks i think about two weeks today actually um and since then i uh the weekend just passed there saturday sunday uh i've been back out with my club our club eastern again uh, we were a coastal rowing club uh, i was coxing on saturday then i was rowing on sunday and the good news is that my bum feels good at last your at bum last. has
0: recovered this is a world exclusive exactly. pal mackeninch scottish actor extraordinaire his bum has recovered
1: exactly You don't realise how important that is once I start to tell you. (laughs) Yes, Um, and
0: by the way, uh, your good lady, goodly um, Nuzmekaninch, and also Shona McDonald, told me about something that you all got very versed on, the thing you need to avoid, was trench foot of the arse, if I may say so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the first row of, like, Omera, I could feel my my arse going and uh, and it didn't let up until we actually finished, you know, because the, the two things you need to to heal is to stop rowing and to keep it dry. And it's the two things you can't do. So for six yeah. and a half weeks, it just got worse and worse and worse.
0: And that is so six and a half weeks was the epic quest in its sort of inception to completion. That was how long. Yeah, approximately. Yeah.
1: It was 39 days. Wow. 39 days. Yeah.
0: And um, when I, I saw the most extraordinary Film sequence of you arriving back. Uh, you were a bearded, majestic, sort of almost like a Ben Gunn, and, <laughs> and you all looked fantastic because um, you know obviously you must. I don't know how much lighter you were when you you're half the man you arrived back being. I'm sure. So what sort of what happened to your weight during the course of the? Uh,
1: yeah, we all you all lose weight, but we were very. Um, one of our crew members, Matt, was very uh, thorough. And uh, he was given the task of uh, sourcing the food and uh, understanding about how much we needed to take in terms of um, calorie intake. And so he was on. So he's he's what um, six foot three, six foot four. He was on six thousand calories a day, and oh. I guess I was on about five thousand a day. So you've got the the dry, desiccated food, the the expedition food that you had to have. Uh, and we had two two of those a day, plus a pudding, plus. We made our own breakfast, muesli stroke porridge. If you added hot water to it, you could make it into a porridge. But it was full of fruit and nuts and all good things. And also you, we added nut butter to it and honey and maple syrup to make it absolutely calorie dense. Great way to start the day, you know. And so it's, we, I, Yes, keep going.
0: I was going to say, it's not as if there is a sort of luxurious sort of galley where you can prepare your food. This is an extraordinarily small craft, isn't it, as well?
1: Yeah, so there was five of us on it as well, so about are 26, 27 feet. And um, they made four, three or four people, and we had five on it, so it was always problematic, the fact space was problematic. Um, but, uh, but but in terms of food, we also had what were called uh, snack packs as well, because we, t- we were told by... Uh, nutritionists advised us that we had to drink water every 20 minutes to half an hour, but also, because we knew that, but we also had to eat every 20 minutes to half an hour. So we had these snack packs, which were usually, I mean, we had dried fruit and things, but we had uh, chocolate covered nuts and and chocolate bars and and, uh, all sorts of things, your whole variety. So there wasn't boring what we were eating. There was always a variety of stuff to eat. And we were pretty good. Matt was very um, robust when it came to it. have you eaten, da da da, have you drunk, da da You know, he was great at that. He was, you know, making sure that we all kept on it because sometimes we were so tired that it be very easy just to go. I'm going to sleep. I'm not going to drink. And I'm not going to eat. But no, he kept on us, and we kept we kept up. So, and he very, was, there very and was very important. Very poly- important to keep the nutrition going.
0: Yes. And he wasn't just there doing the food. He was pulling his weight, obviously, in terms of... Oh, yeah. He's the most powerful.
1: He's the most powerful rower in the boat. Yeah. He was putting... Every time he put in a shift, it was very... He was using an awful lot of energy. But we had to keep fueled and we had to keep hydrated. Very, very important.
0: And even before you set off, in the story that you were telling me about the journey to come, even then, it was this idea of being two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, two hours off, relentlessly for the entire epic quest so yeah uh, i know it's a sort of fairly facetious thing to say but i've been going to the gym recently and even rowing for five minutes i thought you know that's knackering so i i was just full of respect for just the sheer tenacity and well and and what was that like because it was you couldn't stop it was relentless
1: well first of all we we did most crews take two or three years to prepare for this in terms of raising money raising profile And training, we did it in less than a year. But in saying that, we had um, a rowing coach called Gus Barton who's rowed the Atlantic twice. He's coached many teams to world records. And um, so he would give us a a training plan every week, which we would have to, well, we didn't have to follow it. You you chose to follow it or not. And he would adapt it depending on, um, like the guys were working five days a week. So depending on what their schedules were like or my schedule was like, um, uh, he would adjust it or you would do what you could. Yes. But basically he was building us up. He was, he was strengthening our, our core and our movements um, and building up the time we spent on the rowing machine, the ERG as it's called. Yeah. So, um, I mean, my final row before we left for like a mirror, um, I was to do two hours on the rowing machine. Now, two hours on the rowing machine is a lot harder than rowing two hours at sea. Believe ah. it or not, because you're just you, are the rowing machine, and quite often just a wall and gym in front of you. So it's mind-numbingly boring. Um, whereas at sea, you've got you've got everything around you—the beauty and the waves to negotiate, and the crew members, and and it's much much easier to do. But my last row, for instance, I rode twenty-seven thousand uh, kilometers and uh, um, kilometers meters, and. Um, so, I thought I'd just do the 30,000 just to, to make it you know, to make up to the 30. And that felt quite okay. Yes. Because I'd built it up and built it up and built it up. Um, so, then when, but when we went to sea um, in La Gomera, uh, it was a lot hotter than we'd expected it to be. We were told it was going, the first week would be quite cool. We might need our foul weather gear because it might be storms and things. When we left La Gomera, it was baking hot. And so when you, um, I rode out first. Three of us rode out first, and I went for a, a break in in the the cabin. These two tiny cabins, and it was like forty degrees in the cabin. So you're you're you you couldn't move in the cabin without pouring with sweat. So that idea that um, the your bum is beginning to to uh, get raw from the rowing. Um, I couldn't stop rowing and, I, and, and you're drenched in sweat. And if you're yeah. not drenched in sweat, you're hit by seawater. So you couldn't really keep it dry. So it was a constant, constant battle. And you painted
0: quite a sort of romantic notional picture of the Atlantic, the sea, the, 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 the seascape, the wildlife. But what, yeah. what occurred to me was the 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 notion of something like the darkness and then the epicness of the sea, because um, obviously you're doing it day in, you know, you're know, you doing it night and day. So I wondered what it was like rowing in the dark of night versus in the daytime and what sort of thought processes you were going through.
1: The first thing I, I noticed when I, um, we started rowing and we started to get away from land um, was just the, the, the vastness of, of the ocean and uh, it sounds silly, but the quantity of water you just become aware of so much water. And it was almost like my, my brain wouldn't let me experience that without, without uh, trying to protect me from something. I've, I've been constantly, constantly trying to figure out what my brain was doing. But I'd see this huge, vast amount of water. And initially, it was just sort of rolling very gently. So your, 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 your brain is dealing with the fact it used to be on land and everything's still. And now you're in a space where everything's actually moving. And it looks like a ploughed field, I mean, or a field just beside you as it rolls down and underneath and, all, and away it goes. But it's actually water and it's moving and there's such a vast amount of it. My brain was, I'd begin to see things like um, silhouettes of farmhouses and fields and trees and telegraph poles and things, which, which happened throughout, it didn't stop. It was always like my brain was going, don't worry, Don't worry, everything's okay. Look, it looks like land. And there was even at one point where I saw um, there was a a wave sort of broke and it was white. And my brain, half my brain said, there's a sheep. You see, it's land. My other brain went, oh, shut up. It's obviously a wave. (laughs) And the other brain was going, no, 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 it's a sheep. It's a sheep. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's a sheep. Look, there's farmland. It's okay. It's not just water. You know, so I don't know what was going on. This constant battle with my brain. Trying to protect me from the, the fear of not being on land or something. I don't know what it was. Or, or the fear of the, the unknown.
0: It, yes. And trying to rationalize and make sense of escape that you've not been at sea for so long ever before. So it's totally unique to your exactly. brain Exactly.
1: Well. Yeah, exactly. And I love so your time. Your... At nighttime, you'd be, um, it would do the same. It would be like um, I would see silhouettes of uh, uh, woodland, forests. And uh, it's almost like at nighttime, you'd be rowing down this. This river, um, which was really, I mean, when it was when it was a full moon, it was absolutely beautiful because you're rowing down like it, it's an optical illusion, but it's like you're rowing down uh, a river of moonlight. It's quite it's quite incredible to see, but um, when it's darker, you're rowing down this sort of dark river, and on either side, always there was trees uh, and fences and and all sorts. You know what I mean? It was quite incredible, and never never. Um, it was always just this vague sense of something. It wasn't like specific trees or anything. It was just a vague sense. And some of the other guys experienced that as well. But I don't know if they experienced farmhouses and, and um, well, telegraph poles. In things. terms
0: of your sort of mental health and resilience, were you comparing yeah. notes with what was going on for you as you went through?
1: Yeah, up to a point. Um, I um, also began to get hallucinations of uh, people on the boat beside us. and. Um, and I told a couple of the boys this and they were quite alarmed because they said, oh, you, you've got to tell us that because it means that you're depleted in something, you're dehydrated or, or uh, you're, you're so sleep deprived that, you know, something may go wrong. And they were right to an extent, but these um, hallucinations, I had them all the way through um, and only in the white navigation light that we had on the boat, never when I used the red head torch. So that's really quite interesting. And in fact, I'm going to meet with uh, um, someone at the University, Edinburgh University, who is a specialist in sleep and sleep deprivation. Because after the first few days, we were all sleep deprived. Of course. We were all in what I call breakdown. And so what happens is that that doesn't go away. You just get used to it. And and so in terms of breakdown, um it comes in in that comes in waves in, in in people. So there's peaks and troughs. And as a crew staying together, you have to negotiate and navigate everyone's breakdowns, including your own, all the way through the journey. So that was one of the most significant parts of this trip for me, was yeah. how we all managed um <clears throat> manage the breakdowns. And, and because we're also You're also in constant pain. All of us were in terrible pain and you seem to get new pains every day. Different parts of your body would break down as well. So that for me was a huge, huge part of the journey.
0: And in terms of giving space to each other whilst you process whatever mental angst might be going on, I mean, was it quite sort of demonstrative and loud sometimes and sort of spontaneous, you know, tears or emoting or it can't have been a quiet experience?
1: it wasn't loud in, in that sense um, you'd have um it basically pressure builds up in people and and yeah. you have you have outbursts and then but we were quite good at um apologizing and uh, knowing when to apologize and, and and accepting an apology and moving on that was a, a huge cathartic feeling mm. for everyone and um and it's a thing that um i i i was trying to process the whole experience and the interaction of everyone on, on board. And the thing that I, the conclusion I came to um, was in any of these group situations, especially when you're under incredible pressure, there's, there's something that you, you you really need. And I'll tell you that word in a second to, to make things function. But what was interesting for me was there was another couple of guys that we met who were rowing and um, they also left from Edinburgh. But, um, I met them afterwards. One of the guys is um jamie's ex military, and uh, after they had finished as well we were we were chatting about the role and he used to work he used to drive boats for the special boat service, very small teams of elite soldiers uh, well sailors i suppose they, uh, with the navy um but you know top top military people personnel and he said they had two rule rules on the boat, and one was. That if you make a mistake or you're out of order, you apologize. And you also accept the apology from other people and you move on. And the other thing, and this is what really surprised me, and this was the conclusion that I'd come to myself, but I was surprised that they used it in the military, was he said, you need to have kindness. And I just went, oh, my God, it's exactly, exactly what you need. So in terms of the military saying you need kindness, You need to look after each other. You need to be kind. Um, I thought that was absolutely tremendous, and and interestingly, is that's the conclusion I came to myself, because there's no place for um, aggression and anger because you're so frustrated. That's what naturally comes out. But if you can somehow um, turn that into kindness for people and forgiveness then it's journey for everyone is so much, much better and healthier. And, um, and I think people can use that and not just in crossing the ocean, the ocean, it's, they can use it in any group dynamic.
0: Yes. Extraordinarily powerful stuff. And, and the hope is that you've arrived a tighter unit of teamwork makes the dream work. It sounds like you are very close and it could have gone either way. It would seem.
1: Yeah. And, and you know what we've, I'm very proud that we managed to hold it, hold it together when it got yeah. incredibly difficult. Uh, the, the, it's, the pressure that it puts on on relationships is, you can't imagine. That's why if some crews end up having fisticuffs. Couples break up. You know what I mean? It, so it's, it's intolerable, the pressure it puts on people. And the fact that we came through that as friends is, is a testament to to something about us which is extraordinary and you know and we, we did this together and, and, and nobody can ever take this away from us we've 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 got this now and that's a bond that will never never break between us
0: and the stuff you're describing is you know, the mental processing that's nothing you could have prepared for before you suddenly find yourself adrift at sea but rowing no we
1: had we had two wonderful psychologists who helped us out uh, um, uh, with many sessions with them and they gave us a, a groundwork to work from so probably with without that, who knows? So if anyone is thinking of rowing an ocean, have um, psychologists, sports psychologists talk to them about what you need to, to do to prepare for that and what you need to, to do to remember when you're out there yes. and to have things that you can places you can go to protect you from I don't know the worst excesses of our of our vulnerabilities.
0: And, and it's called the Talisker Whiskey Challenge is a flotilla of vessels, isn't it? It's Talisker
1: Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. Yeah. And yes, so every year it varies, but there was 43 boats in the fleet this year.
0: And, and there's sh- boats,
1: there are boats still out there.
0: Still doing the, the trip? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, yes.
0: Uh, and presumably it's, it's about finishing. It's not literally about the race. It's just the challenge of getting across, I would say.
1: Well, our club um, are very competitive, so we wanted to, to be competitive. We wanted to do, you know, and, and doing it as a five is still quite unusual. So there was a chance, you know, if we got the right conditions, we, we could have set the record for the, for the fives. Um, but quite early on, we got, we had technical difficulties and we lost power three times. So by the end of the first week, we knew we were out of competition. And in terms of morale, certainly for me, I I've, I've, I've felt completely debilitated by that because I felt as if I'd let a lot of people down. I remember, I'm in, already in breakdown, so I'm not thinking straight. And, but I was overwhelmed by the, the sense of letting people down. And, if, and Shauna and uh, my wife had, had booked uh, flights to come out and stay with us, expecting us, home by a, us in by a certain date. And now it looked like we weren't going to end be in with that date, so I'd, I'd messed up that as well. So I'd let down my wife and kids, and and it was just quite overwhelming. Um, but um, and in fact, I I, I I spoke to to short after one night shift, and I learned don't don't phone home after a night shift because you've got the sat phone, you can have a, sh- a short phone call, and um, and I said, oh, I was so tired, I was so tired, I was so down, and and she said, she said, she just said, I love you, and that was me. I was. Broken. <laughs> I just couldn't speak. My lip was trembling and now it's like all over the place, you know. And she went, are you OK? Are you OK? You sound like you're drunk. <laughs> I was like, I'm certainly not drunk. I'm just in bits. So you do you do go to very dark, lonely places. But what I, I, I um, there's a wonderful actor friend of mine, Bertie Porto, who, who rode the Atlantic in 2011 before it became the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge. And um, I don't even know what position he came in the race because it never really bothered me because Bertie rode the Atlantic. That's all that matters. Yes. And I sort of, it was a little moment of, of release for me because I went, it doesn't matter about us being competitive. It just matters that we stay together and we finish. And so that's what I've taken from it is that we, we've rode the Atlantic together. We've, we've, we did it. It doesn't matter where we finished. You know. We didn't get the podium finished. It doesn't matter.
0: Yes, and that's certainly the external perspective. It's just you know, everyone I know connected to you, and I have felt, you know, Mm -hmm. from afar, just nothing but immense pride at the fact that you did it. I mean, you're as you've said, you've done it. There are fewer people than scale Everest that have rode the Atlantic. It is a tremendous triumph.
1: And and hearing that, I mean, and and people, there's a woman came up to me and just I didn't know her in the in the supermarket the other day, saying, "Oh, we're so we're so proud of you." We'd, I don't know you, but I saw you in the news and, and we're just so proud of you. And then she walked off and I was really touched and moved by that. And then hearing um, how people have been affected is, is really, you know, it's really moving. I, I, I do. I do love it. I didn't realize how much it would affect other people. You know, so that's and that, it's a wonderful thing when people express that to us. You know, it makes it all worthwhile. It makes all the pain worthwhile when you, when you know you affected people in such a positive way.
0: And just to reiterate the kindness word that you concluded, you know, there is that adage, be kind, be kind, be kind, but most of all, be kind to yourself. And, you know.
1: Absolutely. Totally, Chris, honestly, because you can give yourself, you're in breakdown. You can give yourself such a hard time, as I did. I gave myself, I I was so hard on myself. But I found strength and I I gave myself a good talking to and I managed to find a way. I I empowered myself about three quarters of the way through because I was up and down, up and down, up and down. And then I just gave myself a good talking to, and I and I went right now. You just just be present and enjoy it as much as you possibly can. And it's such a microcosm
0: of life's mental health journey. The idea of it goes in waves, and obviously the Atlantic's going to give and keep giving. In the fact yeah. that it's rolling in, you know, things change, evolve, different. The hallucinations you're experiencing as well. I mean, it's just such an extraordinary escape you've described. Well,
1: there's one there was one point where um Alec, our skipper, was he was trying to film some stuff to send back for social media. And um and I'd said my name and what I was doing, and we were rowing across for for young people's mental health. And then he he went, brilliant okay. And then he paused second, he went. Oh God, what about our mental health? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, both. There was just a moment of we just laughed and we went, "Oh my God, I oh know we're going insane, we're going nuts here."
0: <laughs> and you mentioned laughter there. What, what were the? There must have been extraordinary rele- releases of and the relief of laughter as a catharsis as well. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it was always delightful when we found something to, to to laugh at. It was also a lovely moment where, again, Alec and myself, with a moment, a morning of uh, well, probably about an hour or so, of, of poetry recital. We were just started reciting all the, and that was delightful. So maybe oh, so you
0: went quite there. You recited what? Sorry.
1: Oh, uh, poetry. We did all the poetry we could remember. So it was like um, maybe that's what we needed was more art more arts on boards to keep ourselves sane, you know. Maybe and there's there is a metaphor a... in that as well.
0: And you, you've done a soundscape yourself of doing some Rabbi Barnes poetry. I, I was When I was reminding myself of the stuff that you've done in your career, you've actually read mm. a, you, you, you've recorded a lot of Rabbi Barnes as well.
1: I have for the BBC, yes. Indeed, that was a while ago.
0: So I could just imagine you starting to pontificate the complete works of Shakespeare as you row across. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and by the way, when we're going to come on to what, what I'd like to do is, is just go into some of the construct, because I think it could be lovely and delicious analogy stuff. So if we can agree that your clearing is the Atlantic and we've been getting yes. great. This is where we've been rowing across uh, mentally in any case. Um, so you just mentioned about there is Shakespeare in the canopy there. So um, what type of poetry did you find yourself reciting?
1: Uh, I did some uh, Wilfred Owen. Uh, I told the story of. Uh, I did a play years ago called uh, Not About Heroes, uh, which is the meeting of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon uh, in what was called the Craig Lockhart War Hospital in Edinburgh. They were sent there after the First World War, uh, after they came back from the front, both of them, and they met there in the hospital. And it's now Napier College or Napier University, as it is now. And. Um, so, I, some of the Wilfred Owens stayed with me, but it was also reminding me. I told Alec like the story of um, uh, Stephen MacDonald, who, who wrote the play. He was also a brilliant actor and director. And um, he very kindly, because myself and my friend Paul Featherston I put this, we wanted to put this play on ourselves, and we did a, um, created a tour around theatres in, in Scotland. But Stephen very kindly agreed to direct it for us because he was up at the Citizens Theatre doing another play. Um, I think he was doing the vortex actually with Rupert everett and um, and it was he directed us it was brilliant so he knew the play inside out he knew the the, the period and all the rest of it he knew the characters and you couldn't have had a better director you know so we felt in very safe hands now we we toured with the show and we were part way through the tour and uh, Stephen phoned me up and said would you um Napier college as it was called then are doing um, a celebration of the armistice, First World Armistice, and they've asked me to come and talk about Wilfred Owen and Siegfried soon because they met at Craig at War Hospital, which is now in April College. And, and that's where a lot of the play, in fact, that's where the whole play is set. And um, he said, would you guys come along and I'll do a talk, but you just come on and do a couple of scenes from the play. And, um, and we said, yeah, of course. So um, and so there's a theater there, Napier College. and I remembered I was in the wings, about to go on, and I remembered that Wilfred Owen had done plays in the Craig Locker War Hospital, and I imagined that this was the very same theater. And I imagined that Wilfred Owen, who I was playing, was probably standing in this very spot before he went on during one of his plays. and in thinking that I missed my cue and I was late. <laughs> but it was a great, it was a great moment for me. You know, you actually playing someone who was alive and standing in the very spot they were standing and doing the very thing they were doing, which is acting. Yes, it's, and it's a bit
0: like your mind went to somewhere even more present because you're realising the sort of historical legacy of the moment of where you're standing. Exactly. So it's very relatable, lovely stuff. Yeah. So um, just borrowing from the construct of the good listening to stories of distinction and genius. This is obviously in spades, a story of distinction and genius, just from the very epic quest fact of what you've achieved. So to borrow from some of the construct, um, we'll talk about shaping, first of all, because it's four things that have shaped you. So how would you describe and we don't have to make it as linear as this, but how would you say the journey has shaped you now that you've done it?
1: i feel very humbled I feel quite i feel quite emotional saying that um it was it was so it was so hard um physically and mentally it was so overwhelmingly difficult um and then coming to conclusion about needing kindness in life and forgiveness That's really powerful. And I think certainly um, in being a parent, I feel at the moment more connected to my children. I feel... I I listen. I'm in a better listening place to, to them and to, I don't know, people in my life, I guess. So... I think that's certainly what it seems to me at the moment. Um, and I, I, people, I've done a few interviews and things, and I even did an interview when I was almost arriving into uh, Antigua, and, and I realized that people were asking me questions, asking me to analyze what I'd been through, and I, 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 I'm not sure I was ready to analyze it, so I didn't know what was coming out. And, and I realized, well, you know, the thing is, I'm going to keep analyzing this probably for the rest of my life. So someone asked me a question at one point, it may may vary from point to point, but that's my takeaway at the moment from it is is I feel very humbled by it in in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. And I feel, as I said, in a a better listening place to other people and um, what they may be experiencing in life.
0: Lovely answer. And in terms of inspiring you, so how, how did the Atlantic, how did the journey inspire you? Would you say?
1: Um, well, what I've just said is inspiring. Um, I don't know. It's just moments like oh, I don't know about inspiring, but rowing, rowing, rowing with a full moon, at nighttime across the Atlantic, and going down that, as I said, that optical illusion of the river of light and um and the warm air and rowing in the dark but with the moonlight with the your top off and rowing and and realizing that the nearest human habitation is the international space station that's that's quite an experience and 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 it makes you feel very very small but but sort of enormous at the same time, so, so part of everything around about you. Um, that um, I don't know what it inspires me to do, but it just it certainly. By the way, that me... was such a
0: lovely answer because that was about awe inspiring. The whole mm, thing is oh, awe
1: inspiring. Okay. Yeah. The, OK, awe inspiring. I was certainly. Yes, that's how you describe it.
0: In terms of star constellations, was there a particular guiding star that you related
1: to Oh I was t- I was totally taken by Orion I hadn't seen Orion oh his glory I don't know their glory um but the, the stars um, Ed taught us how to always find the north star uh, for instance and just the, the the breadth of stars was just in, incredible and and also um quite early on and it was down by the horizon um on the port side and um so we we're talking east and uh, and I was just right on the rise, there's this flash of light, explosion of light. And I went, what was that? And Alex said, oh, it's, it's, it's a moon flash. And I went, what is that? He went, well, just watch. Uh, and then, so there'd be this flash of light and then nothing. And then suddenly the clouds sort of parted and the moon appeared and then started to rise. And it was just phenomenal, incredible. And I didn't see it again. We saw lots of shooting stars. You don't really get blasé about them. Though we saw lots of them and they were really clear and they went on for quite a while, some of them. And then one night, again, it wasn't a moon flash, but we saw it was quite high up. It was just so it was nowhere near clouds or anything. Just this explosion of light. We were rowing at night and there's this huge explosion. And we're like, Whoa, what was that? And then you sort of go, wait a minute. We're not in contact with it. There could be a third world war. We wouldn't know anything about it. You know? <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere. But so, yeah, you see phenomena like that in the night sky and it's, um, yeah, as you say, awe-inspiring. It's just incredible. And, you know, bioluminescence across the ocean. That's quite incredible as well, you know. By
0: the way, what's really profound is your own relationship to Orion's Belt. That's so relatable to me because the middle star in Orion's Belt is my navigation point to my sister's death. The day she was killed, I went outside and the star was that third, the middle star of Orion's belt. So wherever I have been historically since 1979, whenever I see Orion's belt, the middle star is always winking at me and that's Hazel. So, so that's, that's oh, incredibly you feel relatable.
1: That. Yeah, And yeah, you love absolutely. that
0: constellation more than any others.
1: Ah, oh, great. Yeah, so no, I was just struck by it. In fact, someone offered to tattoo it for me on my body somewhere, so I'm gonna go for that. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. And so um in the construct now, it's two things that never fail to grab your attention. Uh, which in the construct normally is oh squirrels, but there aren't many squirrels unless you're hallucinating at sea. You have described flying fish, but mid-row, mid yeah. everything you've described, mid turbulence, mid joy, mid mid all the gamut of human emotions, what would what would never fail to grab your attention, even if it's the shooting stars or Orion's belt? What things never fail well, to Well, I haven't told you about you. my
1: hallucinations. Certainly one of them would be my hallucinations. So um they were people on board the boat with me. Uh, first of all, the first one I saw was my wife on the um, aft cabin. I saw this figure and I went, oh, Shauna, that's, that's, oh, Shauna's here, great, great, great. And then the next night it was, and the weird thing is my brain knew it, it was like the flagpole and the flags. It was, it was something hanging off the side of the boat. It was, my brain knew it was something physical, that I was seeing as his vision, but the visions were really clear. So the next night there was a woman standing and in- I said, I don't know it's the flags, I know it's the flagpole, I know it's the flags, but there was a woman standing on the aft cabin facing east this time. And she looked like a, a woman from like the clearances in Scotland of sort of period. So she's got um, a shawl around her shoulders and a scarf on her head. And she was pe- dressed in period clothes, just gazing out east. And um, and there was uh, other characters. There was there was three people appeared right beside Alec or Skipper when he was rowing, and we had music playing one night. We had music playing a few nights, but the speakers broke, so we didn't have any music for most of the time. And they were sort of bopping along to the music, <laughs> um, but they were real faces, real people. Not that anybody I, I recognized. And um, then there was there was. Um, there was a very uh, powerful looking um, black um, African woman who was on uh port side looking west. And at that point I was, I, I, I was thinking, am I in the sixth sense? Am I actually seeing dead people on board boat? What? They're so clear, they're so clearly people. And, and and my brain's going, no, no, it's just it's just a hallucination. It's just a, yeah, I know it's a hallucination, but that's so clear. She's looking out. Why is she gazing west like that? And um, and eventually I would see lots of people. Some some were like grotesque puppets, um, faces, demon faces, uh, but they weren't as interesting as the actual real people faces that I saw. And um and then eventually it was um I was rowing and there was this. A young woman came up and came up at speed beside me and then looked, turned around and looked me straight in the face. and I, I got afraid. <laughs> I went and then I got angry. I went, right, that's it, no more, no more, no more. You can all just fuck off. I'm not, gonna, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I didn't see any hallucinations for a few nights after that. But as always, my brain just shut down that I couldn't take it anymore. But um, then.
0: It, was it typically plastic. in the dead of night or was it any time of day this could yeah, happen? Yeah, no, it
1: was always nighttime. Always nighttime In the navigation, the white, I, say, I would call it the ghostly light of the navigation light, and never the red head torch light. So that's quite interesting in itself. The brain, whatever brain chemistry was going on, you know, so it's sleep deprived. I don't think I was so dehydrated, and I was still eating, so I imagine it's just sleep deprivation.
0: Coupled with a heightened, heightened sense of presence, I would say, because it's it's just so unique to, be, to find yourself in that seascape. I mean, the, the Atlantic is providing such a beautiful storyscape in what you're describing here, mm-hmm. really. And, and what about fear? Did you ever feel scared if there are storms kicking up? Or,
1: um, You know what? We didn't really feel scared. Um, when we lost power, um, we had to row at night time in the dark without the navigation light without um, the AIS system, which means that you can see other boats and they can see you, so no one could see us. And also, um, I didn't hand steer, I was always rowing, but a couple of the guys had to take turns hand steering and following a compass, which is furious concentration. And doing it at nighttime is so hard. to try not to fall asleep and you're trying to keep it on course. And um, hand it's very easy to overcompensate, and then you have to pull it back again and before you know it, the boat's all over the place, you know. Really, really hard stuff to do. And um, So that was concerning, the fact no one could see us, but I wouldn't really say it was fear. We were quite lucky in that sense, and we trusted the boat. There were some very, very big waves, but we never really felt threatened. And Alec and Ed kept us going south as much as possible to avoid... full on the beam on winds it might tip us over and when we heard that the one of the american boats had um, been tipped over and they had to be rescued we presumed that's what had happened to them it turned out it wasn't it was more technical problems but um but when you hear that one of the boats has been tipped over and they had to take to the life raft and um rescued by a a tanker or a container ship or something uh, then you sort of go "Mm, right well maybe we were right to keep going south. And avoid these winds, you know. But um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, I don't think we experienced much fear. We didn't see any sharks. So um, when we had to get in the water, I didn't get in the water, but a couple of guys got in the water to clean the hull. Because we hadn't seen the sharks, we didn't really have that sense of sharks around about us. So we didn't even have that fear of getting in the water, you know. But I think if we'd seen a shark, then absolutely we would have been. <laughs> very aware <laughs> but it always was like you know are there any big fish in the sea we haven't seen any you know but um we saw again, j- briefly but
0: that was it okay and I'm, I'm so full of admiration because just the the sheer scale and epicness of it and the how far away you were from what was familiar to you i i think i felt scared for you a few times and i know when i spoke to shauna you were mid you'd only just got going and she was yeah. Having to handle Christmas and New year, knowing that your beloved husband is just out in the big expanse yeah. I felt scared for you after i spoke i can
1: understand that. that I can understand that um because um yeah because because when you're not doing it, you have no power over it, so I can understand why there is fear for other people because you can 't affect it in any way, but we were there, and um Having to get up and row is so all-consuming. All so you're either physically rowing or you're trying to wash yourself and or, or, or eat some food and, and get some precious sleep. There wasn't a lot of time to be afraid, you know. It's, it, you just have to get on and, and do the work. That's what it was like. It is
0: keep on keeping on. You know that adage which is keep on keeping on, just keep moving.
1: Yeah, that's like what you've adage. got to do. The only way to get through this is to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. You know, and 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 the pains we had, you know, you, the pain in my bum was just unbelievable. And you've got to sit in it every day, and it was three weeks before I took any painkillers, and then I was like knocking them back like crazy. And um, but also your your hands blister, your feet blister, um, the, the the oars smack off your shins. They get caught in the waves and they smack off your shins. I you mean, know, it's like I think it used to be a torture by some people this they used to smack people's shins with bamboo poles that's what it's like it's and and the pains in fact yesterday i caught my shin so it's still very delicate and the pain because of that sort of the nerves running down the shin or thereabouts it goes right through your body and it's very painful when your your knees are all cut and scraped and and your shins bruised and and that's just some of the pain one of the guys he got his, his feet got infected and his knee swelled up and he couldn't kneel it was now he couldn't roll for two days Uh, Another woman from another boat, she fell and hit her 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 face first off the deck. And she had a massive swelling coming out of her head. And, you know, so there's there's, there's, this pain. You're living with pain constantly. But here's the thing, and and something I I realized in the boat. We knew it was going to end once we got to the other end, once we got to the other side. We knew it would stop. Just get there, get there, fight through the pain, get there. It will stop. And I had a whole new respect for people who have chronic pain and can't see a way out of it. My mother-in-law, for instance, had um, she just died last year. She was an incredible woman, and um, but um, she she lived in discomfort, if not um, pain, for most a lot of her life. And um, so I really became very aware of people who cannot see the ending and just have to constantly live for that and find a way to be through that pain because we, we had a way out, but uh, it was most, most uncomfortable.
0: And It's such a, a wonderful analogy about just the journey through life on this journey, because it is a, just keep on keeping on it. There are so many analogies about just the journey mm-hmm. of life and it's not over until it's over and keep going. It will come to an, I mean, it's just a, you know, yeah. people will want to speak to you for, for years on end, I'm sure, about the sort of seismic learning that one can glean from somebody who's done it. It's mm. an epic quest of an extraordinary nature.
1: But there was some, I mean, I, just this morning, I read about a couple of guys, these guys, and they were saying, um, they finished the row and they were saying, ah, uh, oh, we loved every minute of it. And I was a little bit jealous of that. I was like, oh my God, but I don't know whose journey is going to be more valuable in life. Someone, somebody who really suffered through the journey, or someone who thought it was just brilliant. I am like with you. I'm, you. I'm you. I'm you with you. I'm with the
0: suffering. I think crafting. <laughs> um,
1: I think. I think you learn
0: more. You know, pain. You know, out of adversity comes great creativity. No pain, yeah. no gain. All the other adages. I think. I think they're probably lying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. So, Cal, as this has been your moment in the sunshine of the good listening to as you row across the Atlantic. Um. I'm going to ramp up to is there anything else you want to say, but um, I'm just going to um, pull out a bit of a comedy prop behind me. This is called the passing the golden baton moment. Way, so it's a golden relay baton. Uh-huh. Who, in your, who do you think would most appreciate within the journey meaning of what you've just done? Who would most appreciate a good listening to in passing the baton onto them?
1: I think um, my friend, Tony Curran would, uh, would love to go on the journey with you. My, um, we were, um, we were fortunate to, there was a, a, when I was away, there was a BBC TV show called Mayflies, which Sean and I were, were both in, but, um, the two leads were Tony Curran and Martin Comston. And if you haven't seen it yet, Mayflies is on BBC iPlayer and, uh, you'll need a box of tissues cause it's very, very moving, but, um, it's almost like Tony, the, it was almost like the, the part was created for Tony. It was just perfect role, and it was you know, great to see um, a you know, brilliant actor, friend of yours, getting this role that's so rich and gets them a chance to show off everything they've learned about their craft. And that's what it felt like with Tony. And um, and yeah, yeah, he would love he would love this journey.
0: And I'm I'm very humbled myself by that recommendation because he's someone like you that I very much rate and respect and Mayflies is one of those things I'm yet to watch but know it's brilliant because I was even moved in watching the the micro clips of it as well. So I know the basic premise of it so thank you for that Cal. So that is passing the golden baton please and your mission should you to accept it is to furnish a sort of (laughs) warm introduction clang in the background. Um, So... um, and now, as this has been your moment, and thank you so much for taking a second row pass through the clearing. That was such a rich conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to say?
1: No, just thank you, really. Um, it's always lovely talking to you. And it was lovely the first time and, and this time was was fabulous. I loved it.
0: Me too. And if you have obviously been listening here on Facebook or on Buzzsprout, Cal was in the clearing about a year and a half ago and thank you for saying yes then but since then of course you've just overcome the most extraordinary epic quest and i have nothing but love admiration and respect for you and thank you for sharing i mean that was so insightful some of the stuff that you've just shared
1: um, I'd even looked out a Shakespeare quote, which we forgot to do, but that's all right.
0: Ah, Captain's <laughs> Lock Supplemental. I, I I thought it might be something from The Tempest or something, but that was too prescriptive, maybe. But what was we're still recording? This can be a bit oh, of a okay. Captain's Lock Supplemental. So no, yes, I please. remember this
1: from Julius Caesar. Um, should I do it just now? Yes, just please. Do you, do you remember last okay. time
0: we recorded you came back in to reread the the speech that you read at my wedding? If That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I keep getting, I keep getting, you know, buy one, get one free. You keep coming back, which is awesome. So uh, yes, please. To your Julius Caesar. Well, I
1: suppose this is, this is the, this is the, but what I take from this piece is that um, um, there's no, there's no point in putting things off. Now is the time. Just go for it, which is what I did with this Atlantic challenge. You know, just, just go for it. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune omitted All the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a true sea are we now afloat and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. So that's it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Lovely. Thank you so much, Cal, a a privilege talking to you. That was just amazing. Thank you and- Pleasure. um, a pleasure. rich listening indeed and so you've been listening to Cal Macnaghten this has been stories of distinction and genius and in a nutshell that's you that is it's extraordinary and um I look thank forward you. to seeing you soon thank yeah. you very much indeed and uh, good night. You've been listening to the Good Listening To show here on UK Health Radio with me, Chris Grimes. Oh, it's my son. If you've enjoyed the show, then please do tune in next week to listen to more stories from The Clearing. If you'd like to connect with me on LinkedIn, then please do so. There's also a dedicated Facebook group for the show too. You can contact me about the programme, or if you'd be interested in experiencing some personal impact coaching with me, care of my Level Up Your Impact programme, that's Chris at secondcurve.uk. On Twitter and Instagram, it's... at that Chris Grimes. So until next time for me Chris Grimes from UK Health Radio and from Stan, to your good health
1: and goodbye.